Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. Man, happy summertime! Fourth of July is coming. Dude, I hope you lay on the grass and watch fireworks and eat delicious grilled meat. Ah, America. All right. In the beginning, but before this earth was even earth, Satan organized a coup. He was trying to overthrow the rightful rule of our father, the rightful rule of God. And the scriptures talk about it this way. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But Satan was not strong enough and he and his followers lost their place in heaven and the great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And here on this earth, this distant outpost, this far-off colony of heaven, Satan began again, renewed his coup, if you will. This time in little wars, guerritas, if you will. That's where we get the term guerrilla warfare. And we just say it guerrilla instead of guerrilla, right? So you have these little wars, right? These sneak attacks, Seeking to lead the world astray bit by bit, little by little. Now, we as people are living in this war zone, this guerritas every single day, these attacks. And because we live in this war zone, because we live in an earth which Satan has usurped to his power, we frequently feel that something is amiss. We feel homesickness for a different world. Like we, we feel like, is this it? This can't be it. Even though this is the only world we remember. And occasionally God sends messengers to his children. And these messengers, they say, the, the reason you feel like something is off here is because it is. See, you were not meant to be real, ruled by this usurper Satan, this tyrannical Lucifer. You are children of the true king. And these prophets, as we went over last time, they say one day the true king will return. One of these messages of hope comes at the very beginning of 1 Samuel. Now remember, originally 1 and 2 Samuel were originally called the first book of Kings. We are now in the second book of Kings, 1 and 2 Kings, one scroll, same sort of thing, right? And the story in 1 Samuel starts almost randomly with Hannah's struggle to get pregnant. Then she has this this profound prophetic moment that that creates the thesis for the rest of the Bible. And and she, in this message, she reveals the nature of God. And she makes this exceptionally important prophecy. She says, my heart rejoices in the Lord because under his rule, those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren, has borne seven children. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. And he sits them with princes. And he has them inherit a throne of honor. That, that is what it is like to live in the kingdom of God. There, there is justice. There is mercy. There is redemption. Everything that was wrong is made right. So how is this true kingdom of God going to come? How is it going to happen? Well, she goes on, Hannah, Hannah prophesies, the most high will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. 
In other words, she says, one day, God will visit this distant colony. One day, the rightful ruler, the true king, he will return. And she and other messengers, other prophets, make it clear that life under this godly government will be radically different. They say that the true king will bind the usurper Satan so he can't hurt us anymore. He shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there any more be pain. And he will give unto them beauty for ashes. Yes! Yes, yes, yes! Give me this! Now, when Hannah makes this prophecy of the coming of a king, Israel doesn't have kings. She is living in a time of judges. But her prophecy is clear. It will be a king. The king will come to rule. The Most High will thunder from heaven and the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the first time that the title anointed is used in the Bible to refer to a king. The word anointed in Hebrew is Messiah. In Greek, it is Christos or Christ. So spoiler alert about the true king. We call Jesus, Jesus Christ, like it's some sort of surname, but it is a title. Jesus, the true king. But that isn't clear to to the people who are living this story at the time. That's not clear in in the time period of our storyline. So just tuck that information away in the back of your brain. After Hannah's prophecy, her son Samuel anoints two different kings to rule, Saul and David. Then later, David asks God, Uh, through the prophet Nathan, great name, if he can build God a temple. And God gives an interesting response. He says, "Ah, no, I'm good with the tabernacle, but let's talk a bit more about houses or dynasties. God declares through nation that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, meaning a dynasty for David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. I will establish his kingdom, meaning this descendant of David, God will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house or a dynasty for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. When the people do wrong, I will punish him for with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So there it is. God declares, there will be a true king just like Hannah prophesied. Except it's, he's going to be mighty, like she said, but it's going to be a little different. Here he plants seeds of how the, this power is going to come. He's going to be a suffering servant, one flogged, one, one who knows sorrow. And through that, he will bring about peace and joy. This, this homesickness that everyone longs for, this, this way of being in this world that, that feels so intrinsic and natural that is so not here, he's going to bring it about. 
And we know through this prophecy that this true king is going to be a descendant of David. So the rest of the story we find here in Kings is kind of like this. When I was young, I would go to my grandma's house and she had a book there that I read, I had read to me over and over again. It was Are You My Mother by P.D. Eastman. And the story goes like this. An egg is about to hatch, so the mother flies away to get some food for the baby. While she is away, the baby bird hatches and heads off in search of his mother. Along the way, the baby bird inquires of a kitten, a dog, a hen, a cow, and finally even on an excavator if they are his mother. And the, the answer over and over again is along the lines of, How could I be your mother? I'm a cow. Except for the excavator, which can't talk, and so he just gives a, a loud snort of exhaust. But then, in an unexpected twist, the excavator lifts the baby bird and drops it right back into the nest where he finds his mother. Now, the book of Kings is kind of like that. Over and over, after uh, David, people are asking the question, are you the promised king? With each king, they say, are you the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, the one who will finally free us from Satan and his misery? And the answer is going to come similarly in a twist, but don't let that stop you from asking the question, are you the promised king? So let me tell you the story as they tell it and see how you would answer the question. Remember, each time we we tell about a king, you should ask the question, is that the true king? Now, we are going to, to do all the kings, And unless you want to slog through and read it for yourself, this is going to be your best overview of all of 1st and 2nd Kings as far as the kings go. So because we're going to tell the whole story, we're going to break it up into two episodes just so that we can get the full story. So this week's Come Follow Me will will end up being two uh, episodes here. Anyways, let's go part one. Our story begins with David. After a long civil war with his son, see last episode, we find David old and worn out. They, d- they try to get David going again by marrying him off to an exceptionally beautiful and attentive young woman because that has always worked to invigorate David in the past. But it's clear when even that doesn't work that he is on his way out of this world. So seeing a power vacuum, one of David's sons, Adonijah, and my pronunciation on all of this is terrible, so my bad. Adonijah steps into the ring and declares, I will be your king. And he actually gets a quorum of influential people to follow him and start throwing their support behind his claim. But the prophet Nathan is not one of these individuals. When he hears about Adonijah's claim, he goes to David's wife Bathsheba, you know, the same Bathsheba of the rooftop. And Nathan says to Bathsheba, go and get thee in unto David and say unto him, Didst not thou, my lord, O king, swear unto thine handmaid, meaning to Bathsheba, saying, Assuredly, Solomon, thy son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne? Why then doth Adonijah reign? So Bathsheba does just that. And while she is talking with the king, Nathan comes into the conference and asks, Is Adonijah supposed to be king? Like he hadn't arranged the whole interaction beforehand anyway. 
And the king swear, David swear, and say, As the Lord liveth, that hath redeemed my soul out of distress, even as I swear unto thee by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly, Solomon thy son shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne in my stead. So they called Solomon in and performed the, the formal coronation. Uh, Zadok, the, the priest, took a horn of oil out of the tabernacle and anointed Solomon. And they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, God save King Solomon. Following the coronation, it says this in uh, chapter 2 of 1 Kings chapter 2. Now the days of David drew nigh that he should die. And he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be thou strong, therefore, and shew thyself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes and commandments and his judgments and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses, like see Deuteronomy, Leviticus, right? That thou mayest prosper in all that thou doest whithersoever thou, um, thou turnest thyself. Basically, David says to Solomon, be a good king and follow the Lord, especially pay attention to what he said in the law and you'll be good. But then right after this, David adds um, and consolidates uh, Solomon's power by murdering or ordering the murder of anyone who could possibly get in the way. So after David dies, Solomon does just that. He quickly marshals his forces and they systematically assassinate all his potential political enemies in their homes and in their fields. And therefore, he is able to claim power for himself. I'm telling you, the ancient world is a scary place, especially if you wield any power, you're always going to be a target. Um, then in chapter three, in an effort to ensure political stability for Israel, he aligns himself with Egypt, one of the perennial great world powers of the day. And this is the beginning of the end for Solomon. And you might be like, whoa, 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 whoa. He just started. How can this be the end? How could you even predict that this alliance is the beginning of the end? Well, you may not know it, but way back in Deuteronomy 17, when Moses is receiving laws about basically everything, he gets a section that relates to future kings. Here's what it says. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord hath told you, you are not to go back again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And the king must not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. So here's the basics. The king must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself, must not make the people return to Egypt, must not make, take many wives, must not accumulate large amounts of uh, gold and silver, and must not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. So here we are right off the bat, and he starts taking many wives. And like, he gets up to like a thousand. And in particular, he takes a wife from Egypt, and where they are specifically commanded not to re return, very reminiscent of the command not to look back of by Lot's wife. Then he sends people back to Egypt to raise up uh, Egyptian horses and bring them back. Again, like he's basically looking at the list and doing the exact opposite of what Deuteronomy 17 says. So there are some cracks in Solomon's reign, but he's honestly well-intentioned at this point. 
and, and sincerely ask the Lord that he may have wisdom and judgment to be able to stabilize this large kingdom that his skilled general of a father was able to conquer and stabilize. And so you know how the, this plays out. And there's the, the story of the prostitutes and their babies that, um, where he's symbolically given the, this discerning and shrewd statecraft to take power. It really just is a story that shows um, how he is able to manage this big, big land. It, it kind of is a, a key insight where some of the other political things might be kind of boring. The story about the prostitutes and their babies is really rather intriguing. So under his keen leadership, Judah and Israel, and, and those are kind of the designations of the northern part of the kingdom and the southern part of the kingdom, are many, like the people prosper. They're like the sand by the sea in multitude. And life is good. It says that they're eating and drinking and making merry. So it's a good part. Like this is a prosperous part uh, uh, for Israel. Maybe the best thing that Israel's ever experienced. And so now that things are stable for Israel, it's not a time of warfare. Solomon begins a construction of a permanent residence for the Lord, a temple to replace the tabernacle. And in the process, no expense is spared to make a symbolic Eden, a, a remembrance of what it is like when the true king rules rather than this usurper Satan. And in addition to the construction of the temple, he also uses heavy taxation and conscription to build himself a palace and to build his Egyptian wife a palace. Finally, the, the temple is complete and God visits them. And he does this despite their imperfections. It says in chapter 8, verse 10, And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the, the house of the Lord. Uh, clearly uh, reminiscent of when um, the presence of God was with the tabernacle leading Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And it fulfills the promise that, that God says back in chapter 6. He says, I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Then, uh, after the construction of the temple, Solomon dedicates the temple. And in contrast to the people of Babel, who were seeking to uh, make a tower into the uh, heavens and to, quote, make a great name for themselves by building their temple, this temple, it says, will be a place where the Lord has said, my name shall be there. So it's the, this distinct contrast as far as the temple goes and the worship goes here, where the people of the Tower of Babel were trying to make a great name for themselves, self-idolatry here, where the temple becomes a place where we align ourselves with God and take his name upon us, right? In fact, Solomon makes it very clear that this house that he has built is called by thy name. And then he says again, 44, I have built for thy name, 48. Eight, and the house which I have built for thy name. There is no question that Israel is to take God's name rather than try and make a name for themselves. And in response of their humility and their seeking to be God's people, the Lord appears to Solomon. And he says to him, I have heard thy prayer and thy supplication and that thou hast made before me. I have hallowed this house which thou hast built to put my name therefore forever. And mine eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. This is a wonderful start. But then God also gives a warning. And he says, and if, this is a huge conditional. All blessings are conditional, but this is, this is a big conditional. He says, 
I, I accept this temple. I accept your sincerity. If you will walk before me as David, thy father walked. Now David wasn't perfect, but he was generally radically humble and reliant on God. If you walk before me in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded thee and will keep my statutes and judgments, then I will establish the throne of thy kingdom upon Israel forever, as I promised David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee uh, a man upon the throne of Israel. But if thou shalt turn all, shall at all turn from following me, you or your children, and will not keep my commandments and statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then will I cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them and this house which I have hallowed for my name. I will, cast, uh, I will, will I cast out of my sight and Israel shall be a proverb and a byword among my people because they forsook the Lord that, that, their God. Uh, that's basically it. If you will be loyal to me, it will be good. But if you seek any other gods, well, you will be left to have those paltry gods save you. It's a, it's a, it's a foreboding warning if you know what, and anything at all what's going to approach them. Once the, the construction is completed on the temple, Solomon throws his constructive zeal into building himself and his Egyptian wife separate palaces like we mentioned before. And to do so, he conscripts slaves to do the labor, violating the, the command for the king not to consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. Then, in chapter 10, Solomon makes a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with the best gold. And all of King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold. And the vessels of the house were of pure gold. So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches. You remember like, don't take more gold in Deuteronomy 17. And then Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen and had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Don't have more super like tons of horses, Deuteronomy 17. And, um, and Solomon had horses brought out of Egypt. And King Solomon married many foreign women together with the daughters of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians. Ooh, that was a tough one for me. Hittites. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. Remember, concubines are wives just of a lower social status. So he has 700 wives um, that are of the same royal social status and 300 um, of a lower social status. Now, again, I don't think, I don't know if you caught it. I was pretty clear there. But Solomon has managed to violate every single admon admonition given to kings in Deuteronomy 17. And the result is tragic. His wives lead him astray. For it came to pass that when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Ashtoreth and Milcom, right? Ashtoreth is the mistress of Baal. We've talked about this before. Baal is simply a title meaning Lord. It can refer to Milcom or any other local deity. 
Uh, and the way Ashtaroth is worshipped is through ritualized sex. You can imagine this appeals to a guy who has basically a thousand wives. This is a priority for him. And Milcom is synonymous with the title Moloch, who we're going to see later is going to be worshipped through human child sacrifice. So answer this question for me. Is Solomon the promised true king? The Christ? Yeah, no. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared to him twice. So God says, uh, so in return, God says, Solomon's children will not rule. His dynasty will not continue. Just as he, he gave that conditional promise back in the temple. And so when Solomon dies, um, his, his son Rehoboam reigns. And Re, when Rehoboam comes, um, takes over, the people come to him and say, Solomon taxed us heavily to fund his palace constructions and to build up his army and his navy. Please decrease this heavy taxation burden. So Rehoboam consults with the older experienced statesmen. And the older statesmen say, Rehoboam, if you will be a servant to this people this day and will serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, they will be thy servants forever. In other words, these older guys are like, yes, reduce the taxation and the people will love you and serve you forever. But then Rehoboam asks his jabroni friends, who basically are a bunch of entitled Wall Street bros. And these guys say, tell the people, thus shalt thou speak. My dad made our yoke heavy. <laughs> so the people are like, your dad made the yoke heavy. Please make it light for us. And then he's, they're, they're like, tell them, my little finger shall be thicker than my father's loins. If that's not a bro statement, I don't know what is. And whereas my father did laid you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father has chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. <laughs> so they're like, full send on this. More taxation. Get us more money. And when he does this, he sends out Adoram, um, who is over taxation and the people greet the, the person over taxation by stoning him and he dies. And so what happens because of this is 10 of the tribes, a significant portion, rebel against uh, Rehoboam and they form their own nation. So after this moment, you have the 10 tribes who are part of the northern kingdom. And from here on out, they're going to be referred to as the kingdom of Israel. And then you have two tribes in the south, uh, the, the larger of which is Judah, where the kings come from. And so they are going to be uh, referred to as the kingdom of Judah. So we have Rehoboam, Solomon's son, ruling Judah in the south. And then we got a new guy named Jeroboam, ruling Israel in the north. Now, we are going to trace all of their ruling descendants. And remember, your job over and over is to ask, is this the prophesied deliverer? 
Is this the true king, the one to free us from Satan, the Messiah? Now, since Jeroboam is new to ruling, he's anxious to consolidate his power. And he is nervous that if the people are always traveling to worship at the temple in Jerusalem, that's the center point of Judah's power, that they will see uh, Jerusalem as the true seat of power and abandon his claim to rule them. So one of the first things he does is build a pal- uh, is build places to worship in Bethel and Dan and furnishes these places with golden calves to oversee the rituals. Doesn't sound ominously reminiscent of the Exodus at all, does it? After setting up these golden calves, the record says that Jeroboam returned not from his evil way, but made again from the lowest of the people's priests, from the lowest of the people, priests of the high places. Whosoever would, he consecrated him and became one of the priests of the high places. So I don't know if you caught this, instead of honoring um, God-given priesthood authority, he just chooses whoever is willing to officiate um, in these idolatrous practices. He, he anoints them priests, many of them lowborn, trying to improve their station, and so completely disregards priesthood lineage or authority here in doing so. And the days which Jeroboam reigned were two and twenty years, and he slept with the fathers, and Nadab his son reigned in his stead. Meanwhile, back in the south in Judah, Rehoboam continues his father's, father Solomon's proclivity for idolatry and ritualized sex. As part of this worship, he adds to the wickedness male and female shrine prostitutes. Yeah, that's bad. So bad, so fast, it's crazy. I don't even know what to say other than sex has a crazy strong pull over us and it seems to be with them too. Now, since they have abandoned God, God leaves them to their own devices. So when Rehoboam's kingdom is attacked in the south by Shish. Ak, king of Egypt, they lose badly. And Shishak, king of Egypt, took away the treasure of the house of the Lord. This is like second generation away from David, second generation after the construction of the temple. And the treasures of the king's house, he even took away all and took away all the shields of gold which Solomon had made. Any questions about how you're rating Rehoboam on the true king scale? Rehoboam dies, and Abijam, his son, reigns in his stead. And Abijam, kind of unsurprisingly, walks in all the sins of his father. Yeah, we just talked about that. No bueno. And Abijam slept with the fathers. He dies. He's buried. And Asa, his son, reigns in his stead. And in a shocking turn of events, Asa did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. The first thing he does is he gets rid of all the male idolatry prostitutes. And then he removes all the idols that his father had made. He even goes so far to remove his own mother from government because she had made an idol in a grove. And anytime again you see grove, think Ashtaroth and idolatry and ritualized sex, etc., And Asa destroyed his mother's idol and burnt it 
but isn't able to completely eradicate high places um, because, well, they're sometimes remote and people keep up um, these kind of ritual centers for Baal and other deities. So overall, a pretty good scorecard from Asa, but not perfect. And in the time of Asa's old age, he was diseased in his feet. The biblical authors seem to see this as being due to to him not being all in with God. Pretty good, but not all in. Therefore, they see this as a punishment. Anyway, Asa dies and Jehoshaphat, how about that for a name, takes over and reigns in his stead. But let's pause on him for a minute and let's go back to the northern kingdom of Israel. There we got Nadab, the son of Jeroboam. He begins to reign. So the question is, is Nadab the true king? Well, the next verse says, And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father, and he made Israel to sin. So that would be a no. So again, no divine protection. And so when a guy named Basha kills um, the king, meaning Nadab, and slaughters all his descendants so there would be no other claim to the throne, it's basically unsurprising based on how Basha starts his reign. He does evil in the sight of the Lord. He is not the true king. And then he dies and Ella, uh, his son, reigns in his stead. But Ella's reign is not safe. He was put on the throne by a man who murders his way there. So now there, uh, that coup is an acceptable path to power. Zimri, Ella's captain, conspired as against him, gets Ella drunk, and then kills him. But as soon as Zimri sits on the throne, he goes out and he slays all the house of Basha, all the men, all the children that could have claim eventually to the throne, and even all of his friends and cousins just to make sure there are no other claims to the throne. Very violent, very bloody. So Zimri, when he takes over, he was captain or general over half the army. The captain over the, the other half of the army is a guy named Omri. And he doesn't submit to Zimri when Zimri tri- starts this coup and instead starts a civil war splitting the northern kingdom of Israel into two. Then Omri attacks Zimri's capital and wins And when Zimri sees that he is lost, he dramatically goes into the palace and burns it down over him and dies. Not the true king. Then a guy named Tibni takes over for Zimri, and the civil war continues until ultimately Omri wins and reunites the northern kingdom of Israel in one kingdom. Now, despite being a great general, Omri wrought evil in the sight of the Lord and did worse than all that were before him. That means tons of idolatry and all the ugliness that goes with it. And in his sin, and we're talking Omri's sin, he made Israel to sin and provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger at their vanities. So Omri dies and his son Ahab takes over as king. And Ahab, the son of Omri, 
reigned over Israel and Samaria 20 and two years, so finally some stability after this series of coups, civil war, and violence. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. That's saying a lot. He takes to his wife a woman named Jezebel, and together they served Baal and worship him. And he rears up an altar for Baal and a temple for Baal, all there in his capital in Samaria. He makes a grove for Ashtaroth, Baal's consort. And in all of this provokes the Lord Israel to anger more than all the kings of Israel that were before him. Again, this is pretty exceptional. So God attempts a rescue mission of Israel and Ahab in particular with the mission of Elijah. Elijah, as we talked about last time, brings drought, that prophet duel calling down fire from heaven, all that action. And then Elijah is followed by Elisha and all of uh, the Lord's uh, attempts through Elisha to bring the people back and all the miracles there. Now, Ahab is bad. And if we, we look at that, we kind of get this flat caricature, like he's some cartoon character villain with steepled fingers and a cackling laugh. But he's not that. And that's what part of what makes the Bible so rich, part of what makes it so difficult, because he's complex. When the Syrians attack Israel, God sends a prophet to warn Ahab. And Ahab listens. And because of that obedience, they win the battle. But then he quickly fails again. After the, the, the victory, there is a guy named Naboth that has a vineyard that comes right up uh, against Ahab's palace. And Ahab wants to buy it. So he calls in Naboth and says, give me thy vineyard and I will give thee the worth of it in money. And Naboth says to Ahab, I'm not going to do that. Like if I do, if I, I'm not going to give away the inheritance of my fathers. Like my family has been on this land since we came into the house of Israel. And when Naboth won't sell, Ahab comes home and he lays himself down on, bed, on his bed and turns away his face to the wall and would eat no bread. Oh my gosh. What a pouty baby. All I can think of is Cusco in Emperor's New Groove, pouting in the rain and blaming everyone else for being turned into a llama after trying to force Pacha off his family's land. Unfortunately for Israel, Ahab is advised by his wife Jezebel instead of Isma. And Jezebel, seeing her husband depressed, arranges for the murder of Naboth and orchestrates seizure of his land for her husband. Because of this, God sends Elijah to Ahab, and Ahab greets him, saying, Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? And Elijah answers, I have found thee, because thou hast sold thyself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. And Elijah goes on to say, Because of what you have done, you and all your descendants are going to be wiped out like Jeroboam and Basha, and their families were before you. And then he turns his attention on Jezebel and says, the dogs shall eat Jezebel off the wall of Jezreel. Wowza, that is a violent prophecy. 
Um, and so in response, Ahab keeps doing what he's doing. He did very abominably following idols. And um, when he hears the words of the prophet, it strikes a chord. He, um, he puts on sackcloth and ashes. He fasts. He goes about softly. He, he, you thought he was going to keep doing what he was doing, but he doesn't. He changes. And so when he does, the Lord comes to Elijah and says, do you see how Ahab has humbled himself? Like this guy is like the worst king so far and then humbles himself before the Lord. God says, because of this, I will not bring evil in his days. Holy crap. Are you seeing this? The mercy of God, the minute we take a step in God's direction, his mercy and long suffering is so abundant and beyond description. That is the God we worship. Now, with that being said, do I even need to ask if Ahab is a promised one? He's not. But that is going to be the end of episode one for this week. Tune into episode two and let's keep asking the question. Are you the true king? See you in a minute.